0: hello everybody welcome to another episode of transfigured i am here with my friend john you might know him by his sometimes handle uh, called deep dark seas or you might um, now be newly aware of his youtube channel and if you aren't aware of his youtube channel that's part of the purpose of this video is that you should check it out um. So, John, do you want to say a little bit about your YouTube channel, what it's called, um, why you're starting it, and what you hope to do with it? Yeah,
1: so it's called the Montanists, and the, the pun there is um, the Montanists, which were an early uh, Christian sect that were kind of charismatic in a weird way. And I grew up charismatic, so I have an affinity for them. And then the second part of it is Montane, or is the adjective for mountains and mountainous areas, and I, you know, move from the Midwest out to a more mountainous area of the country. And I have a pretty deep, I think, physical and symbolic, um, uh, uh, interest in, in mountains. So those are the, mm-hmm. the motivation for putting those two together. So
0: sure. So I'll, I'll link to your YouTube channel in the comments. And I will say that I am flattered enough to be featured in your first video. Um, so for those who don't know, I've, I've posted this on my community pages and on my YouTube channel, but not everyone always sees those. But I, w- I gave a presentation at the Unitarian Christian Alliance back in October on the subject of Christology and the Eucharist. I'll link to that video. And then John made sort of a um, commentary rec- critique rebuttal um, in, good sp- in good faith and good spirits. And for the record, I, I genuinely appreciate what you did. Uh, I, I find it um, flattering and engaging. And, and I thought that you, even when you were disagreeing with me, it was um, for a good constructive dialogue purpose. And so I really appreciated that. Um, so we're going to maybe follow up on, on that video a little bit, but I think we'll talk a little bit more about John and his backstory before we get into that. And who knows, we might even talk about the Montanists too. Um, So John, do you want to explain a little bit about your background, your faith journey, and how you found yourself on the internet like this? Yeah.
1: Oh boy. Yeah. So I grew up in a non-denominational charismatic church. Um, Always a mouthful to say that, Um, but uh, I guess for people who don't know, the best way to think of it is sort of like third wave, 80s, like Bethel-Redding adjacent. Um, There's a lot of different flavors of charismatics, but that's sort of the stream that I grew up in, so very much um, low church, emphasis on tons and, uh, you know, worship and prophecy and and uh, healing and, you know, a lot of the sort of stuff that you'll see in the more decentralized veins of American charismatic stuff. So uh, I grew up in that. And then, um, yeah, in terms of my theological journey, I still consider myself deeply charismatic. And there's a huge, I have a, a, a you know, I don't know i grew up with it so it's it's really important to me and i still believe in a lot of those things and at the same time i think uh there were a number of theological developments that led me to go more high church um i think having a, a higher view of the eucharist you know real presence view of the eucharist was i think the biggest thing so uh right now i'm at an acna a anglican church in north america uh, congregation um so which is more liturgical, more high church, um, you know, takes communion seriously, quite frankly, (laughs) compared to, you know, uh, the the lower church that I grew up in. So um, yeah, I don't know. That's the brief version, but.
0: Mm -hmm. So how did you get interested in, you know, internet theology stuff?
1: Yeah. So I think there was, so, the way I initially, the first person I ran into, I think, was Jordan Peterson. Obviously, like a lot of people, I think I got him through, I don't know, probably some, you know, political discussions or whatever. And I I think I I listened to him some, but I really started paying attention to him a lot more once I discovered Paul Vanderklay. So there was a of mine in a campus ministry that I was at, that was like, Hey, you should check out this Paul Vanderclay guy. And, you know, I did, and the rest was kind of history. Um, so, you know, he started, you know, he was talking about Peterson. And so I was, I engaged with Peterson a lot more um, on that level. And of course, this whole sort of community coalesced around Paul Vanderclay and, you know, this little corner of the internet or, or you know, whatever people like to call it. Um, and, you know, through that, I discovered Peugeot, who was, you know, also very eye-opening to me. So, um, yeah, I would say PVK, Peugeot, and Peterson, the, the three Ps. We need one more P to fulfill Verbeke's uh, <laughs> set. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know who that is, but uh, um, the, they're, they're probably the thinkers that I've paid the most attention to and I think cherish the most. I have a lot of respect for what all three of them are doing in their different ways. And I think more than anything else, it got me, you know, it opened the doors to this, this huge online community that was just out there. And, you know, eventually, uh, we had our in-person meeting last summer, um, the, the BOM Chicago meetup, and that was just fantastic to be a part of that. And, uh, so anyways, that's, you know, again, the short version, but I think yeah, I'll leave it there.
0: Yeah. So John is one of the few guests of mine that I have met in person uh, prior to uh, speaking on YouTube. I think maybe Jacob is like the only other one. Maybe I'm forgetting. Although I suppose Paul's been on my channel and I've met Paul in person. And Bethel, I, uh, because she was at the Chicago yeah. event too. So I suppose yeah. all of you are in that rarefied club of people that I've actually met in person. So um, I think one thing, John, that you and I have in similar, in common, is that we're kind of left-brained sort of people on that sort of science engineering end of the spectrum. And we grew up in charismatic churches that are much more sort of right-brained, I don't know, intuition-feeling, subconscious sort of stuff. And that it was sort of like an interesting fit for us. And we got a lot out of it, but somehow it was sort of also a weird, you know, not maybe our natural temperament. And then we find our way and there's, you know, other kind of more intellectually sophisticated uh, branches of Christianity. But yet there's something about our charismatic past that we can't quite shake off or dismiss either. So how do you sort of think about and integrate your charismatic past now that you're attending a high Anglican church and are thinking about theology and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's good. You bring that up. That's something I, that that's something I'm actually toying with as a as subject of a, you know, a video on my channel. Um, but I think, you know, my thoughts on it now are like what charismaticism growing up in that helped me do is, you know, this is, you know, this sounds sort of whatever touchy-feely but it's true you know it helped me be in touch with my emotions and how spiritual experience and emotions relate in a way that i don't think i would have gotten anywhere else like you know part of it is if i'd grown up in some like young restless reform sort of baptist church or something um i don't know if i would still really take christianity seriously today and i think what charismaticism has done for me is say, look, you can't put God in a box. You can't uh, boil him down to these, these, these formulas or a theological treatise. Um, And, you know, that's not just a charismatic thing. I mean, Aquinas recognized that at the end of his life, he's like, wow, with all this stuff I've written, it's just, you know, it's, it's ashes, whatever. Um, So, but I think it, at least my, my hope is that that background and growing up with that, that God does unexpected things and never, never stays confined to the boxes we like to put him in. I hope that helps me stay uh, theologically humble. And when I'm able, when, when I approach the intellectual side of things like you're talking about, I'm hoping that I can, you know, always have that in the back of my mind to say like, hey, this, you know, I can't possibly get the scoop. On all of this, you know, none of us can, and um, so, yeah. And I mean, I think the, yeah, I I think it, it definitely had some formation in in how my personal personality ended up. I think, um, I it I'm pretty high in openness, which I don't think would have happened. I don't think that would have been my that that was much more nurture than nature. Let's say let's say. Um, So I don't know that that would have happened had I been in a more uh, propositionally inclined, you know, doctrinally inclined uh, church environment. So I think, yeah, yeah, I have to chew on that more because there's a lot there because there's a lot of formative stuff. But yeah.
0: Yeah. I liked what you said about how your charismatic background maybe helped give you some tools to help weather some difficult periods of faith or intellectual challenges to faith, because if faith had been purely an intellectual or propositional thing, it might've been easier to deconstruct, but in charismatic churches, the grounding of faith is often not propositional or doctrinal. There's some weaknesses to that, but it is often experiential or perspectival, as Verveke would say, and that it's, it's your experience of God that is the important thing and the purpose of church is yeah you know there's some teaching yeah bible that's true but that this first person connection to god this experience with god or a personal relationship with your lord and savior is some you know that's maybe a cheesy way to say it but there's actually a lot going on in that absolutely yeah and and that there's something slightly more durable about that that's harder to deconstruct than your abstract uh propositional faith
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you can't rely on everything, you know, experience for everything or even many things. But I think the point of, of, you know, my, my theology of God is that he's a fundamentally relational being, right? You know, God is love, you don't get any more, you don't get any more positive, cataphatic statement of the nature of God than that. And so, I guess the point is that, that, that experience that we can have with him, you know, in, you know, especially growing up for me, it was having this experiment, experience of God's kavod, his glory, his heaviness, you know, coming over me in this church setting and we're worshiping. And it's, it's this, yeah. I mean, people call it a flow state. I think that's too shallow. I don't think that captures everything, but I think that that is where the, the, relational magic happens, so to speak. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I don't, I think, you know, I wouldn't restrict it to charismatics. I think I've experienced that to, in a different degree in the Anglican liturgy. Um, and I think clearly, you know, the Orthodox and the Catholic have their own resources for that sort of thing. So, but I think for me being, like you said, the, the, the right brained orientation of, where I grew up really helped balance out in a good way the inherent
0: left brain orientation that I have. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sometimes I think that um, people raised charismatic make the best high church participants. Uh, because I guess I know a lot of people who grew up high church, and liturgy as a spiritual experience just isn't like a thing for them. It's just like what you're supposed to do. And they're so used to it and familiar with the liturgy that it doesn't, I don't know, shake them out of their um, perspective a little bit. And I think a a charismatic background that can have its pros and cons when it finds that environment that is theologically rich, it can engage those muscles that it learned growing up um, in a way that perhaps the liturgy was originally intended to do that sometimes people who grew up in it might have a challenge doing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's an interesting point. Yeah. So the Montanists, I feel like are an interesting Christian group. Um, They, for people who don't know, they were sort of a Christian group that got started sometime around the mid second century. And they actually lasted a long time. They actually, I think had influence for a couple hundred years. I think the emperor Justinian um, destroyed the graves and relics of some of the Montanist prophets that were still intact in Turkey. And so when was the emperor Justinian in like the sixth century or something like that? Yeah. 500, six hundreds. Yeah. Something like that. And so clearly you would only do that if you were still worried about their influence uh, still around and wanted to quash it out. Um but yeah, they, they, when a Pentecostal or a charismatic person reads about them, they're like, well, that sounds familiar. They had a very heavy emphasis on speaking in tongues and prophecy. They had people who they would designate with the term prophet or prophetess. And that's also another interesting thing is that the Montanists, compared to the non montanist Christians at the time seemingly were comfortable giving higher roles and authority to women. Um, not just because they were feminists, but because they believed in the power of the Holy Spirit so strongly, and the Holy Spirit could be in men or women. And so that was sort of the basis for their egalitarianism. They were also quite apocalyptic. Uh, They felt like they were still receiving revelation that was basically akin to scripture. And in fact, there are times where Tertullian, the most famous Montanist, will even say that some of the revelations that they've continued to get trump some of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. So they, I'm not quite sure if you would quite call that an open canon, but something kind of close. But then again, it's like the second century. So like the canon is pretty still negotiable, no matter what perspective you're you're at. And I think really the main distinction between the Montanists and the non-Montanists Is the Montanists still wanted to have the main authorities in the church be prophets or a very Holy Spirit driven form of authority where people with a clear gifting, no matter what their background was or how they came up through the ranks of their church, if they had a clear gifting that was recognized by the community, then that was where the Holy Spirit was at work and that's where the authority should come from. Whereas on the other different track of Christianity, there was more and more authority placed in the realm of bishops and the sort of formal hierarchy and that bishops then get appointed and there's a succession of them and that sort of thing and there was the, I, that that was one of the main tensions between the montanists and the Mon, non-montanists is should authority be sort of charismatic or spiritually anointed or should it be more institutionalized i guess
1: yeah i it's it's interesting you bring up that you know dichotomy of authority between the two because that's one of the things I'm wrestling with right now is because I've taken a lot more, I'm taking like apostolic session succession a lot more seriously. Um, I think there's a lot of meaning in that and being able to trace back what spiritual lineage to Christ himself. Um, but at the same time, I'm also like, you know, right with, with Peter when he quotes Joel too, you know, he's like, you know, your, your men and your women, your will prophesy, your, your um your young men and old men will see dreams i'm butchering it but it goes something like that um so yeah i and it's you know the 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 one thing which is why i you know when i sort of did my intro video on the channel i would be like i'm not claiming that i am a modern day modernist <laughs> you know is the one thing you brought up is the the uh Authority of prophecy over scripture or, you know, the possible, at least the possibility of that, which is very uh, like you're not going to find any modern day charismatic who would affirm that some of them act like it function. They'll use their personal prophecy revelations to interpret scripture, but they're not going to say that this is a new revelation that could even supersede that of the apostles, which I think is yeah, that's that's the one blight on what I see
0: for the Montanists. But otherwise, Although to be fair, they were like 100 years afterwards. Right? right. So it was it's a little bit more imaginable how one could think that way back then. But yes. yeah, I agree. yeah,
1: no, that's that's true. And so it's not like it's not a not that it's not a big deal, but it's not as big of a deal as it could be. Right. Because things were so in flux and, you know, people were still figuring out the you know, the, the nature of Christ, as you well know. And, and so, uh, you know, you, you gotta cut them some slack. <laughs> right. <laughs> and,
0: and you can imagine in the early decades of Christianity, where you have people continuing to get revelations, like when does Paul have his spiritual experience that sort of gives him the authority? Cause he, he quotes the fact that he's had revelations from Jesus multiple times as the thor- as the source of his authority, yeah. he's not an apostle in the sense that you know Christ anointed him as one like some of the other apostles are around. He's an apostle in the sense that he's had a direct revelation from Jesus. And then whenever the Book of Revelation gets written, you know, we, call that whenever you will, but that is another book that claims to be a direct revelation from Jesus. So you can imagine how these things are happening at some interval, and it wouldn't be obvious when exactly that would stop. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and thinking that that was just sort of carrying on is, is a more reasonable conclusion than, than it might seem to us now.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And I think the, 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 the organic way that the, you know, church developed and, you know, the, whatever, how, how, how theological orthodoxy, how church structure, how community functions, all of these things developed was very organic. Um, you know, it's not like there was a, a time where they, you know, somebody, you know, the entire church agreed as one to lay down the hammer. This, you know, this, you know, it ends, we're officially in a new dispensation, as you yeah. might call it, right? You know, so yeah. uh, uh, that's, it's it's interesting, but the, the what that, uh, that obviously, the organic nature of that leaves much room out for, um, you know, stuff like montanism And there's a sense in which Protestantism, uh, rekindled that that flame because now you know it becomes a matter of personal conscience and so you know I could I don't say this but I, I could look back and say oh look the Montanus they, they had it right man let's go with them mm-hmm. they, they've got all the things that I grew up with that I could you know see in the Bible and whatever um, so yeah it's 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 an interesting I don't know it's it it would be cool to be on the ground. Like if there were, I think if there was one church period, uh, you know, outside of, you know, being there with Christ himself and the apostles that I would like to go back to, it would be that period with the mockers just to like experience that, experience the tensions between them and the, the, uh, the the mainstream church, I guess. And it's, you know, that and to, you know, between the two of us, it's interesting too, because, we we both have sympathies towards, uh, you know, certain uh, groups that we might have seen in the early church that, um, you know, didn't end up becoming the the uh, what the dominant orthodox position of practice, right? So like, you know, yeah, the you know, the
0: bishop system beat out the prophet system. The, right. the Montanists lost and Justinian right. uh, desecrated their graves, literally. So, yes. Yeah. yes,
1: and I mean. I think I you know it's hard to judge because things are so complicated whether that was a definitively good or bad thing but I think mm-hmm. in the balance I have to admit that that was a good turn of events because the I'm not sure that the structure of the church could have propagated in such a chaotic way right you know we've 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 been using this metaphor for a long time of you know the fire in the fireplace and um in one sense in one sense you could make the argument that uh, if the fire if the fire burns out it's it's gone right but if the fireplace you know if the fire in the fireplace burns out and you just have a fireplace well at least you have a place you can go back to to reignite something
0: mm-hmm. so
1: that would be maybe the argument for tradition and hierarchy briefly put but
0: I don't know it's it's a yeah. and it's, it's sort of like I think Christianity's at its best when the the right brain and the left brain are functioning together. And yep. you can sort of see in the Montanist controversy that the left brain and the right brain were sort of splitting apart and running into tension with each other. And it was a little bit sad. I think another thing that's interesting about the Montanus that I, like, and this is true of a lot of early Christianity in general, and this is one of those things that I don't quite know how to deal with. Like You know that I place a lot of respect and authority on the early church and wanting to emulate and trust the witness of the early church in matters of doctrine and practice. But one thing that I have to admit that I get a little bit uncomfortable on is their sexual ethics were so intense that it is a little bit different than ours. And the Montanists, another thing about the Montanists compared to the bishop-led system church was that they were like, anything that you say that's strict will be one degree stricter. Yes, they were yes. sort of like hardcore on, you know, you only fast this amount while we fast these extra days. You say that um, you can't get divorced, but you can remarry after death. Well, or the death of your spouse, I guess, probably, hopefully that was clear. Um, the Montans were like, once married, always married. You can't get remarried even if your spouse dies. That's a form of adultery. And uh, so basically, and one of those things was a really high emphasis on virginity that is almost difficult to really describe to the point where, like, if you read Tertullian, he basically thinks that sex is a bad thing. And maybe it's okay if it's for the sake of procreation, but even then, maybe kind of (laughs) not. And it's like the, that everyone should be aspiring to sexual chastity. And maybe it's okay if there's some amount of people in your church that are like, oh, I really don't think I could do that. And they get married and they have some kids. But that's definitely not uh, performing at the level that's optimal. And that's something like no charismatic church today that I know of has that same super hardcore sexual ethic. Yeah that i see in the montanus and you can see how that will eventually form its way into monastic traditions in the church and the you know monasteries and convents sort of kind of help channel that you know anti-sex impulse that's in the early church into maybe a, a more constructive contained way without it just being like no one gets to have kids and well the the forms of christianity that taught that didn't last very long but there were a lot of them and yeah. so that's one of those things that I have sh- I, I struggle to integrate. Honestly, is that almost all of the witnesses that we have in the early church have a much harder core sexual ethic in terms of sex, perhaps being almost a bad thing. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and
1: uh, you know you would probably know more about this than I would. But I I wonder if there was a bit of a bit of Gnostic influence in that. I could see that being absolutely the case. Um, yeah. The you know, disconnection from the physical world and why should we even mess around with this if this isn't the true reality, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, and I think there, there is, there's definitely a strand of, of Gnosticism that manifests in a very different way in the modern charismatic churches, you know, like, I'll fly away. Oh glory, whatever, you know, this sort of this, like this, this earth is not our home and all of that stuff. And you know, you can find that in general evangelicalism too, of course, like it's not strictly charismatic, but I think, I think the one thing that I think leads charismatics to be more vulnerable to that, let's say is this, um, this idea of, of, of faith not necessarily like full word of faith but um this idea that you know like god is not going to completely heal everyone in this life so but because the the emphasis on healing is so strong as i think it's it's great that it is um that i think can lead people when that stuff doesn't happen as it often you know god often doesn't heal people um the instinct is, well, uh, I, I think that the implicit instinct, I don't think anybody makes this explicit, but the implicit instinct is, let's look to the, you know, let's look to heaven, let's look to the, you know, the, the life after death or whatever. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of a weakness that can, can seep in. And so it's, it's interesting to compare those. Um, but of course, like you said, the the sexual ethic has not at all translated into the modern day in terms of any, you know, form mm-hmm. that we see. I mean, uh,
0: well, I mean, still, you know, the idea of monogamous marriage and sex is only for marriage. That part is still there. But, yes. but, the, but the, the distrust of the goodness of sex uh, that is clear in the early church to the point of a high emphasis on virginity where like Tertullian's describing his church, and you almost get the impression like half the people are nuns or monks, and that and, and that it's sort of almost normal or to be expected that Christian converts become celibate. And only some people don't, maybe if they're already married, or you know, something like that, or they couldn't quite make the cut, or something like that. Yeah. And that that idea, I think partially because of Uh, Modern day evangelicalisms or modern day charismaticisms root in evangelicalism and Protestantism that sort of distrust things that look too Catholic, I think is part of why Pentecostalism or charismaticism never really went in that direction, because to start emphasizing virginity would be to like start looking like a Catholic again or something. But it's it's weird that 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 part of Montanism didn't come back. The apocalypticism did. And they even sure to some did, extent yeah. <laughs> the the holy roll the holy roller holiness Pentecostal thing, there's some Pentecostals that have really, really strict moral ethical codes that's almost oppressive. And so that part kind of did, but it's interesting that the virginity thing didn't really. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It got too tied to Catholicism and and you know, that was the whole thing that they were like like, you know, the there's Catholicism. Then there's the Magisterial Reformation and the Radical Reformation, of course. So the Charismatics, modern Charismatics, are very much Radical Reformation, right? We don't want to have anything to do with these, you know, with this sort of Catholic stuff. And it's, it's, it's not even the weird thing is it's it's percolated down so much over 500 years that it's no longer even an explicit rejection. Like it's just. We, you know, we're a we're a full gospel church or whatever. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, nobody thinks about it, right? <laughs> right? Well, I but, could go
0: to the half gospel church or the full gospel church or the skim gospel church, you know. Right. Yeah. I if, I, if I go to two
1: half gospel churches, can I combine that and make that a whole, you know, anyways. <laughs> but I think the the other, to sort of go back to your, your reluctance on some parts of the church fathers, the other you know as i've 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 grown to have a lot more respect for tradition but at the same time they're uh, they're mostly you know for the most part universal opposition to the ordination of women is sort of a weird sticking point that i i, I found because um, i'm you know i i'm definitely convinced in like the low church protestant exegetical sense that women can be um, you know have those sort of roles and i think the this is again like where the the charismatics would break from that more um, more traditional position because they have you know like you said like the like the holy spirit empowers people to have gifts and that's going to come on men and it's going to come on women it's not you know there's nothing about like there's there's not as much debate of like, okay, well, this exact text does, you know, the word kephalē mean head. What does head mean? All of this this weird, intricate exegetical stuff that the, you know, non-charismatic people in this debate like to end up about. You know, the, the charismatics are so much about like participation. Look, this women, this 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 group of women or this woman has this fantastic spiritual gift. Let's let's go. Let's give them a chance. You know, God is clearly mm-hmm. empowered to do something. And that's the sort of Spirit that that that's like that, that's the one sense in which i'm a little bit restorationist in a weird way because the the montanus had that and the the mainstream church you know seemed to reject it at least over some period of centuries however long that took and i'm more in favor of it i don't know it's so you know i feel torn in a few different theological directions in that respect so yeah
0: well, speaking of things that charismaticism didn't embrace that perhaps for fears of looking too Catholic, and this could tie us back to the one of the original purposes of this conversation was the Eucharist, and that most charismatic churches that I've ever been in have very little clear sense of what the Eucharist is for. Maybe they do it a couple times a year, once a month, or who knows at what particular, whatever they feel moved to do it. And maybe they don't quite know why, you know, it's commanded in scripture. And so we're going to honor that it's commanded in scripture, but there's not much thought given to it beyond honoring the commands of scripture. And then sometimes they'll even like explicitly say something along the lines of, you know, this is just a symbol or this is just something that we were taught to help remember Jesus or something like that kind of uh, making it explicit that it's not a, uh, I don't know, um, a real, I don't know, liturgical or sacramental thing, and then go ahead and do it. And if you look in the early church fathers, universally, as far as I'm aware, the only person who comes close to having a kind of more Zwinglian view is Origen, but Origen is the exception to most rules. If there's ever an exception among early church fathers, it's Origen. But anyway, excluding Origen... Every church father, including Tolian, the best example of Montanism, has a very sincere, at least spiritual presence, if not even something even more quasi-physical than that view of the Eucharist and that it was the center of their church gatherings. And that was the thing that they actually gathered to do once a week. And so that's another thing that I could... I, and I did I, I did my part in my presentation to uh, poke people's imaginations in that direction. So um, yeah. I don't know if you had any reactions to that, and then we and then after that we could move more directly into my presentation.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting how much you brought up the 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 Eucharist in that presentation. And, you know, I had some comments in my response about that, but like it's kind of I bet it was kind of weird talking to this. You know, these these are all probably very low church winglian sort of perspectives right and and oh man sam's turning into a catholic unitarian (laughs) with this eucharist stuff what's going on (laughs) that's what happens
0: when you talk to too many catholics and orthodox on your youtube channel Sam. they get to you
1: right Right. and people
0: accuse me of that
1: (laughs) yeah 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 and and like my my simple reason for being having taking the high church traditional perspective on this is like what the, the the church can't offer better motivational speakers, better music, better, you know, what have you, then the world can do all those things better. The one thing that the church offers that nobody else can offer is Christ himself in the, the bread and the wine. And so that, that, that logic is what is most persuasive to me. I think it's the, the biggest weakness of the low church, you know, charismatic and evangelical, um, uh, perspective and also the the you know the biggest strength of the more high church traditional perspective is that that that's really the axis on which my sort of theological development is turned um because it you know what it does and this is you know again this is sort of leading into you know uh your talk is um it it brings about this this incarnational uh ritual right into the center of the service right so it makes it makes the incarnation real and, you know, really present to us, you know, and, and, and it's like the fullest way that we could participate. And so that, that, that's the logic of it that has been like supremely convincing to me about the Eucharist. And I wish, yeah, I wish charismatics would, would take me more seriously. You know, I was like, I, I spent some time at when, you know, as I was sort of having these developments, but still going to my, you know, the church I grew up in that was charismatic. I was, I, I, you know, it was hard not to cringe whenever we did it. Cause I was like, Oh man, you know, we're just, <laughs> you know, that it was, it was not, you know, it's not taken very seriously, as you say, it's just, you know, we're doing it cause 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 it's in the Bible, man. Right. It's that sort of thing. So if we want to be full gospel, we got to do this thing, but we don't really know what it means, you know? So um yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for anyone who's gone this far who hasn't seen my video, there's a. will put a link to it, and then I'll definitely put a link to John's uh, commentary on my video. But my basic premise of my presentation was biblical Unitarians get asked a lot about, if you don't believe Jesus is God, how can you worship him? Or perhaps a version of the question could be, the Bible commands the worship of Jesus. And it also says only God can be worshiped. So therefore, Jesus is God. some, some argument that somewhere along those lines. And like, for the record, that's a question that I actually think is a good one. And, and as far as um, questions that need a good answer, I think that that is one. And then my basic, and that's funny, because it doesn't sound like, okay, so same, what's that have to do with the Eucharist, right? That's an entirely different question, you know, look at some Greek words, give some definitions to some Greek words, which I did do. But, uh, you know, what's that have to do with the Eucharist? And then I tie it back into basically saying, if you look at the, the Old Testament form of worship, it's very centered on sacrifice, particularly animal sacrifice in the tabernacle or the temple. And that's what sort of the action that most defines worship is in the Old Testament. But then when you get to the New Testament, that sacrificial system in the temple is done away with. And so then what's the New Testament definition of worship? And I say that the Eucharist is the New Testament act of worship that corresponds with the Old Testament act of sacrificial animal sacrifice in the temple. And then my my roundabout got you argument is that it's not Jesus who is being worshipped, it is Jesus, who is a worshiper and also the sacrifice, and God the Father is the unique recipient of the worship. And so therefore, there's a distinction between the worship that's given to the Father and honor and praise and veneration and homage that's given to the Son. And therefore, no, the Son isn't worshiped in the same way the Father is. Therefore, there's not a violation of the commandment to worship only God. And so that, that's sort of the basic premise of my argument. Um, and then John had some relatively good points against me. So uh, I'll, I'll pass it back over to you uh, for your reactions to my presentation.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing to say is it's a, it's a really creative argument that you make because it's synthesizing this you know, much more traditional little Orthodox idea of the Eucharist being the entire center of worship and then sort of, you know, using it to, to, um uh, you know, bring in this, you know, it's the, the, the more Unitarian perspective on, on Jesus. Right. So, which is totally non-traditional. Right. So it's, uh, I was managing you know,
0: to make both sides uncomfortable. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right. Right. And that's, well, I mean, you're, yeah, that's it's yeah. So it's it's funny how you how you how you uh, how you did that, and and you were you you know you had to be so empathetic that like, look, it's not about this Mary stuff, the Eucharist. It's a perfectly good word. Don't you know? Don't start you know, burning me at the stake or whatever. You know? Yeah, right. Um, but I think, yeah, it's what what one of my big, uh, I think, responses in that was. I think it would be very hard to affirm a high view of the Eucharist and simultaneously a, a, you know, a low Christology, if you're okay with low, you know, that sure. sort of term. Sure. Um, I, that, because I think the, the, what, what the, the Eucharist to me only makes sense under an incarnational logic where Christ gives himself in both, physical and and spiritual form you know to us you know this is my body this is my blood um and that is something that it it it's like to 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 me and i think the the high church tradition would generally agree with this is that is the the most but that that's the 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 ritual in in which the incarnation becomes most salient to us Um, and so Yeah. I think the, 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 there's sort of, maybe there's two sides of it. There's like, there's like the more old Testament. Okay. Here's the pattern that was established in the old Testament. Here's the, how it was kind of fulfilled in the new Testament. And that's sort of what your presentation was focusing on. And then there's maybe the more, let's say theological reflection of what the Eucharist fundamentally is and how it manifests. So I guess the, you know, the whole point is, uh, I think it would be very hard to to hold to this high view of the eucharist and at the same time a you know low unitarian christology so i would be
0: interested to hear what you think about that sure that's reminding me let's see here one of my early conversations on my channel was with a guy named james arcadi an incarnational model of the eucharist who i think made basically a very similar point to what you were just making that his view of the eucharist was you know if we with the with our incarnational theology where we've got one person with two natures well we can do a very similar thing with the eucharist where we've got one element with two natures like we've got a thing that is has a bread nature and a body nature and then another thing that has a wine nature and a blood nature basically and that through a very similar metaphysic or a similar theological argument, you can understand it as being kind of two, thing, or two aspects of one thing simultaneously. And that it's like Jesus incarnates himself in the elements of the Eucharist um, in, those, uh, in, in a properly done ceremony or something like that. James Arcati was previously a, a professor at Trinity Seminary. Um, but I think that they recently had some staff reductions. But anyway, that's besides the point. Anyway, people can go watch that video on my YouTube channel. I think it's one of the least watched videos on my YouTube channel, so I would say if it got a little bit of love, that would be deserved. But um, so that's sort of at least part of your point, is that the Incarnation is helping provide a possible framework for understanding the mystery of the Eucharist. Right. Um, But... But then there's this other part of your point that maybe I need to understand better of so why so why what's the necessary part of the high Christology? I think maybe go
1: back to go back to like you laid out those those the I think part of it is the the fulfillment and the radical transformation of what came before. So like I think this maybe this relates to like another response. I had about you know the sort of tables you laid out of how worship, you know, how the nature of worship has changed from the you know the old te- the old covenant to the new covenant. And the one thing that you pointed out didn't change was the the recipient of the worship. And to me, um I don't know, I feel like everything changes because the 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 how do I explain this, the the nature of 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 revelation has has entirely changed yeah so that the table so like everything everything here has undergone a radical transformation except who is receiving it right and i think yeah
0: so this is a table for my presentation so i'm basically comparing old covenant worship with new covenant worship and then i've got this dual aspect thing going on with new covenant worship where in the where I can say that the Old Covenant worship happened where it happened, in the tabernacle or the temple. The Old Covenant worship, what was sacrificed? Mostly animals, but maybe food or oil or something. When was it done? The Old Covenant worship happened yearly, monthly, weekly, or daily. There was different uh, worship ceremonies and different frequencies. Who was leading? The Aaronic priesthood, or specifically the high priest. And then who was participating? It was Israelites or some worship ceremonies were a special group of Israelites. And then who is receiving? My arguments that it's Yahweh or God the Father. And then in New Covenant worship, I'm saying there's sort of like this dual aspect thing where there's kind of like the earthly manifestation of the worship. And then there's sort of the spiritual or heavenly reality that's parallel to it. And so in New Covenant worship, I'm saying that The worship happens where, anywhere that Christians gather, but in a spiritual sense, it's happening in the heavenly temple. What is uh, offered as a sacrifice in a physical sense is bread and wine, but in a spiritual sense, it's Jesus's body and blood. When does it happen? It happens weekly on Sunday. Uh, When does it happen in the spiritual sense? It's sort of like eternally always happening in some sort of heavenly kind of way. Who is leading um, leaders of the local congregation? That was a that was my uh, way of avoiding the question of, like, bishops and 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 uh, presbyters are, are, are getting into that. I just say, I'll just go with the leaders. Yeah. <laughs> who could argue with leaders? Good call, good call. Good call. <laughs> and then in a spiritual sense, it's uh, Jesus leading as a heavenly high priest. Who participates in a physical sense as Christians on earth. In a spiritual sense as the heavenly host uh, or angels, I guess you could say. And then my argument is that who is receiving it and this is where i argued that this part doesn't change is that yahweh our god the father is continues to be the recipient and that's the one piece of continuity between old covenant and new covenant is that god or yahweh uh is still the recipient and not jesus so for anyone listening or who didn't see the presentation that was what that table is yeah
1: so to your original question i mean i don't know i honestly don't know how else to make of, how else to construe a high view of the eucharist without a high christology i just i just feel like the 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 universal witness of the of of how this has always been understood in church tradition is um is in that sense that there's this incarnational logic going on and that is how we are that that's the way to understand how we can be united, you know, as the entire body of Christ um, through these elements. Right. Um, like, I think, it, you know, it, it makes, you know, it, it's understandable to me that you could have a, you know, low Zwinglian view of the Eucharist and simultaneously, uh, you know, a low Christology that, you know, that I don't see there's a, a problem with that. But I, you know maybe maybe you have a way to, to square the circle. I would be interested, but I, I you know, I'm not sure how else it, it could possibly work. If you assume a high view of the Eucharist, how you also don't, like, how that is not necessarily supported by a, you know, a high incarnational
0: personality. Yeah. And I think the way that I square this circle in a short answer, I'll give a long answer, but the short answer is like, basically Jesus gets divinized and that it's because I basically have a high view of Jesus now that I can do most of that work. And I think that specifically what I mean is like, there's the verse in first Corinthians 15 where the first Adam was a man of dust. And the second Adam has become a life giving spirit. I might, have gotten that a little bit wrong, but it's pretty darn close that Jesus becomes a life giving spirit. And I think that this means a couple things. I would even say that there's almost some sort of sense in which Jesus becomes united, probably, I would say through participation, but becomes basically unified with the Holy Spirit. That in this sort of double action sense that Jesus is so permeated with the Holy Spirit. And that in his exalted, divinized, spiritual body, post-resurrection sense, he both has a body that can eat fish on a beach. And he can also be a spirit that's inside every Christian. It's like, how exactly that works, I'm not quite sure. But that, that Jesus is this sort of spiritualized body person. And that in the same way that Christ can be in us, in basically through the holy spirit being in us because like i said in some sense the holy spirit and jesus are so closely intermingled after jesus's divinization or spiritualization that you can almost speak of them interchangeably like paul does that quite a bit actually like this the holy spirit is in you the spirit of christ within you you know or the spirit of the christ within you the power of the spirit and like sometimes it's like it almost doesn't feel like he distinguishes between those two things. And I think that's my sort of attempt to make sense of that. And that I think in that way, the Eucharist then is some sort of spiritual connection where we are partaking in Jesus's body and blood. And that it's, it's like a way of getting Jesus inside us or like some sort of refresher or something like that of of jesus inside us in not just a metaphorical sense but not like just a purely physical you can look under it under a microscope sense either um and what exactly that is is a little bit hard to say in modern terminology but basically i would boil it down to jesus's divinization gives me i think a high enough christology now that i can make it work Hmm. okay yeah i mean the The uh,
1: the the interesting I think the other interesting angle that we should bring into this is the the whole worship idea. So when you know part of the um, um, part of what you talked about is is how you know the Eucharist is also it's the culmination of this worship. Whether you know whether going to say you know worship god maybe it's just the father maybe it's also christ you know whatever however you know right um but what's interesting to me about that is paul specifically says and you you've got this you, you've got this passage in in uh in your presentation but i of course i can't remember where it is but paul how paul talks about it being an eternal worship so what to me that indicates is it's not like there was a would you say it's hard for me to believe that um, like there is a point at which christ became and perfected it part part of the tricky part of the the sort of becoming language is it's never you know it's not like like the, the new testament never you know goes into ontological minutiae, right <laughs> so um uh eternal eternal redemption yeah um eternal spirit Who through the
0: eternal spirit offered himself yeah. without blemish to God I don't know if that's what you meant um
1: yeah there was i maybe I might be misremembering it I, I remember specifically eternal sacrifice um but maybe i'm I'm not sure maybe it might may, maybe it was eternal redemption or something but maybe that's in the that might yeah maybe it is
0: um But every Lord's day gather, this is from the Dita case and not the New Testament, every Lord's day gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving, which, that is give Eucharist, after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure, but let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord in every place and time offer me a pure sacrifice for I'm a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. All right. So that's maybe not the passage that we we're looking for. But this is another one of those Christian, early Christian testaments to how seriously they took the Eucharist. Right. Every Lord's Day, that's on Sunday, come together, do the Eucharist. Um, it's explicitly called a sacrifice twice and you are supposed to be um have confessed your transgressions another thing that seems common in the early church and this is pretty hardcore and i haven't seen other any other church do this yet is i think they used to confess their sins um together as a church to each other like almost go around in a circle and have individual confession time out loud to everybody, yeah. <laughs> As a way to purify themselves for the Eucharist, and uh, but I don't know anyone who still does that. Uh,
1: <laughs> I don't either. I mean, in in you know, in the Anglican Church, I mean, we just have this this specific prayer of of uh, you know of repentance and forgiveness that we say, and that's always before the Eucharist. But you know, it's it's this generic, general thing you know the the entire congregation prays together so there's value in that but you know the whole the whole confession thing oh how should it's not like
0: uh so john what do you got for us this week
1: (laughs) (laughs) well let me pull off the laundry like twice as long as last week so you guys are gonna have to hang you know Uh,
0: but man imagine if you took it that seriously where you were like man i can't lie during this because i just you know that would be risking my um health and well-being to get maybe smitten from god for lying in front of the congregation and yeah. worshiping impurely and you know that at the end of this week i'm going to go in front of my community and confess all my sins done properly that could be a really strong motivation for good moral behavior and uh, the, i i can also imagine that going down the road of spiritual abuse but um yeah, but let, imagining a pure good version of that—wow, that would be that would be motivating.
1: That yeah, that would be, you know, really transformational. It would be again, like you said, it would be prone to abuse at the same time. Maybe it wouldn't even be so much that it itself is prone to abuse as people would see that and think it's prone to abuse. You know, because people are used to to church authority being abused. But um, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, I think, let's see, the one one part of it was tricky to me when you were talking about how Christ becomes, um, uh, you know, becomes, you know, becomes a high priest, becomes the mediator, whatever these, all these things is, I, you know, it's not clear. I don't think that, I don't, you know, to me, I don't think the New Testament really makes it clear, you know, for either either side here in the sense that, what it what has become exactly mean? Because you could you could think of become as in Christ is fulfilling a role, and he's bringing he's bringing humanity into a new place, or the original place before the fall that God had intended us to be. So that's maybe sort of a role role idea, versus um, maybe your assumption is more of the ontological, like Christ. There was an ontological change within the person of Christ that. That brought him to this to this place where he can now be a high priest and our leader in worship and all of these things. And I guess, um, you know, it's it's sort of a tricky thing. I don't think, like, is there's there's my my presupposition on that is that there is absolutely a change that takes place, but the change is Christ bringing humanity into the into the original place of, of worship and participation that God had intended us to all along. Um, which sort of gets into another one of my responses, which was like the, you know, the, you know, the, the idea that there could be a, you know, whether there's an inherent, um, contradiction between, uh, christ worshiping the father as a man and him also having a fully divine nature you know stuff like that so um, yeah but you got the it's hebrews of course yes hebrews yeah
0: (laughs) so so the so this passage when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of bloods of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus hearing an internal redemption. Um, yeah, that's probably enough for now. Like, this sort of language to me sounds like Jesus is going someplace he hadn't been before, I guess, is sort of part of my point. You know, at least it seems like that's the most natural way to read it. You know, he entered once and for all. uh, It's like that would be a weird way to describe a return visit to somewhere he had been before um, into the holy place. So I agree with you about Jesus taking humanity into a place it hadn't been before. Because for the old covenant period, there was like a model of this on earth. And even then, you know, the priest had to go through all this very careful preparation to enter closer into God's presence. And if that were done improperly, that could be risking divine judgment on you to enter into God's presence improperly. But how much more is it that to enter into God's presence like in heaven as opposed to in creation? And that's also, I think, another important part of Jesus's divinization is that he becomes the kind of human being who can go there once, you know, enter into it for the first time. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think like, I mean, the language is kind of interesting. You know, you'd almost need to be like a Greek expert to <laughs> really tackle it. But like, you know, it says when Christ appeared as a high priest. So, you know, maybe there's there's two ways that you could take that, that like what you're saying, like there was a, there was a change in the ontological status of Christ such that he was able to enter into this place. Um, I mean, maybe another way to read this would be that you know the author here is sort of prefacing it as when christ appeared as a high priest so the author is sort of specifying the role this is the role that jesus was playing but you know he doesn't say this but you know but i'm not restricting what i'm saying about jesus is i'm not restricting his his uh his actions or his nature to this role this is just a you know this is a particular function that christ has carried out and because to me um but when he talks about when it when talks about an eternal redemption, um, I, and I think this this is the part that you would agree with is it's Christ succeeding where man has always failed and succeeding the, you know, the, the the redemption that he's he's achieved is is on behalf of humanity that it's not something that, like you said, it's not like the priest has to go through all these rituals and be cleansed and only go in once a year. It's not, there's not this restriction on it. And so I think <clears throat> maybe the core of what I'm getting at is that um, I don't see, I can basically, you know, more or less agree with what you say. I think, I think that's a viable interpretation. Um, uh, you know, but for me, I don't see how it precludes Christ from also being, you know, fully divine in the traditional Nicene sense which you could get from, you know, which you could get from other passages. Part of it, it's like, you know, it's part of like, a, part of the problems. It's sort of like a food fight with one yeah. passage, either, right? So it's so, like, yeah, how do you adjudicate? But,
0: here's a question for you. Was Jesus worshipped in the Old Testament? I think I left you a comment like this on your video.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, what did I say on that? Let me see if I can try to pull that up really quickly um but is what i wrote down as primordial here i'll be able to get out
0: <laughs> here, here's um, what you said <laughs> I,
1: I i said something on the lines of basically yes and no so like
0: yeah it's on the it's on the screen now
1: yeah yeah so um Yeah, so the I mean, part of it was like I'm presupposing certain things about my Christology that sort of bridges the divide you're you're talking about, right? Because like the the uh, obviously the Old Testament, um, you know, the the Israelites did not know God in the they did not know God in the fullest sense because God was revealed in His fullness in Christ. So that's sort of my presupposition that I bring to that, and so um so like to the extent that they i mean part of it is like you know i would almost have to tease out well what difference if any is there between yahweh in the old testament and god the father in the new testament what what is the uh, uh, what is the identity of jesus within or inclusive of yahweh um that's you know like it's kind of a tricky thing right because the so, anyways, my answer is basically yes and no. I mean, it, it sort of depends. Um, like, was he worshipped in, in the Old Testament? I think, yeah, not in the fullest sense. He was not worshipped in the fullest sense. But I think, if if I if I presume that, if I you know come to the table already with saying that that Christ is you know as the eternal logos, as the second person of the Trinity is the is an integral you know, integral part of, of the nature of God and the Israelites were worshiping the one true God, then yes, in that sense, in that indirect sense, but I, I don't think directly, if
0: that makes sense. Sure. I think I understand what you're saying. All right. Let me offer another defense of my view. And this is also from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews makes a distinction between two covenants, right? And the first covenant is seemingly mediated by angels is actually, that's kind of a weird thing. We don't in the old Testament, we don't tend to think of the old covenant as mediated by angels, but Hebrews says that it does. It was, and actually Paul echoes some of that same idea in Galatians. Um, But we have the old covenant that's mediated by angels. And I would say that, part of a covenant is how to do worship. And I think the book of Hebrews affirms that. It's it's that and other things, but at least part of it is how to do worship. And then Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And so I, I to me, it feels like either you have to have like Jesus just warming up in the bullpen in heaven, not really doing much in the old covenant, and that there's this angel covenant with his father But he's sort of kind of to the side of that. And then like he comes down and is the mediator of a new covenant. Or you have to say that the old covenant was somehow a covenant with the whole Trinity. And then the new covenant is a covenant with one member of the Trinity as the recipient and one member of the Trinity as a mediator. And perhaps one member of the Trinity still in the bullpen. Um, And to me, that just seems a little clunky. It just seems a little bit easier if we just have Jesus being, you know, this new mediator that has appeared for a new covenant. But I don't think the Book of Hebrews ever describes the covenant as being with a different God or somehow changing the, that which whom the covenant is with. It's just the mediation of the covenant is different. The covenant's still just with God, and it never clarifies how many persons are within the god that that covenant is being made so how would you respond to that that's argument? interesting
1: that's an interesting i can see what you're getting at with it being clunky at least you know at, at the first glance but i mean to your point like are you would you say that then the new covenant is not so much a change in the nature of the covenant itself but more just a, uh, a change in the, in how it's mediated. Would you
0: agree with that? Or Well, I think that the change in mediation has a lot of downstream ramifications. I think that's sort of in the old covenant. we It's almost like we needed angels between us and God as like a holiness buffer. But now that Jesus is clean enough, we have a man that can go into the presence of God on our behalf instead of angels playing that role. And it's like humanity gets as a whole gets taken even closer to God. And that's that sort of language about us being able to approach the throne room of grace without hesitation. Now that there's a human being who's sort of almost like you could say penetrated the angelic protection layer uh, of our behalf through his worthiness um, via his sacrifice. And so that, that has a different change. And I even think, you could almost even say that humans become more exult- become exalted above the angels. Like previously, the angels were above us, but now we get to become above the angels, and like that is more perhaps fulfilled in the in the resurrection. We're in this like weird in between where we're still kind of under the angels, but we have a mediator who's a man who's above the angels, and we're in the like transformation period or something. But. um. Uh, I don't know. So I, yeah. I don't think I don't think the only difference between the covenants is simply a change in mediation, but because it's a change in mediation from angelic beings to a human being, there's a lot that goes along with that. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, here's what I
1: might say to that: is you know, in terms of the nature of the covenant, I think, and this is this is kind of a Pajoin argument, but um, to me, it seems the nature of uh, the, the relationship between heaven and earth is, you know, how that contact is made. You know, if you look through the whole, Old Testament, it seems more like that the context, that the contact is from the top down, right. From, from God revealing down to, to his people, down to the material, you know, the spiritual world, you know, penetrates the material world and, um, you know, if 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 you have the incarnation, then that's sort of the, the the the, the you know what the, the U-shaped journey or whatever the, the spiritual world is coming down, and penetrating the material world, and with it bringing the material world back into its proper place in full communion with the spiritual world, right? And so, to me, and this you know again this is a Peshitoan argument. It's an, it's not like an exegetical argument or anything, but. To
0: me, I accept Joian arguments. That that's an acceptable form of argumentation. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Uh, you know, to to me, it seems like what you're saying uh, reverses the the sort of universal pattern. It's more of like what you're saying is it's more a bottom up thing. And so my my hesitance from a Joian perspective would be um, embracing the idea that that reverses, you know, that just turns on its head the symbolic language and this, these symbolic ideas and, call, and at the same time calls that the fulfillment of everything that's gone before. You know, it's sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. we've been going in this one direction the entire time and all of a sudden we're going to turn around and go in the other direction and say, well, this is the, this is the right way that, you know, we should have been going. Did you, does that make sense to you? Does that yeah, no, it
0: does make sense. It's sort of like God sending his communication down through angels, but the direction is from Top to bottom, and then the change is like there's this you know kind of hyper resonance on that idea where then God sends the second person of the Trinity as a human being, but it's still a top down thing. Whereas I'm right. saying there's some sort of reversal in direction. Uh, Bo Branson actually made a very similar argument to me along those lines one time, and um, I think like my answer is something like it's still god who exalts jesus god does, like jesus doesn't like sneak his way into heaven or something like that um it is still jesus in a certain sense going down to come up right jesus still empties himself makes himself a servant goes down into death for us and then is sort of exalted up by god himself but there is still a, a down to up motion i guess that um i i, I will still affirm but I I don't want to give the idea that I think like Jesus like forcibly entered his way into heaven or something like that. Sure. Well, I
1: think the, and uh, you know, another reason to to bring that up is, is, is to me, it's not clear on, on, on your Christology, how, how Jesus is. And I I may, I'm, we might've talked about this before, but how Jesus is, is unique in the sense that, Like when when it's all when you're only starting from the bottom and going up, you know, theoretically God could have just sort of like, okay, well, this guy's gonna be particularly holy. I'm gonna make him the Messiah, I'm gonna, you know, make him, you know, perfect of sin and whatever from sin and and whatever, and bring him into that. Like what I think what what the what the the incarnational perspective to me how it brings everything together so well is that it—it's like this perfect bridging of the whole gap between, you know, spiritual, material, and then spiritual again. So, um, like, what what do you think is 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 special or unique about Jesus that like Moses couldn't have done, Elijah, John the Baptist? Um, what what is it about his nature or his functions that are you know, was worthy of him not sneaking in, but being exalted. And exalted in.
0: Yeah. And I think really the the, the two answers to that are is that he was the Messiah and he was the uniquely, the only begotten son of God. Um, the virgin birth is, puts him in an exceptional, unique category. And his role as the Messiah was unique that Moses or John the Baptist or whoever else didn't have. I think those two sort of things make him unique enough for that to happen so i guess that's sort of my short answer to that um one other point that i wanted to address that you were totally right about in your commentary video was that in my video i give a pretty hard distinction between proscuneo and latreo as veneration and worship Um, sort of the worship veneration distinction that uh, Catholics and Orthodox do. And then I basically just one-to-one mapped it to those two Greek words. And you were right to point out that there are multiple uses of the word proskuneo that seem to be the more capital W highest form of worship in the New Testament. And you were absolutely right that one of the best examples that I won't argue with is in John four, which is a passage that I had quoted in my video and like, honestly, I had had that in my paper that was the basis of my presentation. But when I give a presentation, I I do it kind of off the cuff, as you can kind of tell, right? I'm, I'm not really looking at notes. I've got my slides, but I feel like it's much more engaging to give a presentation from memory uh, and sort of somewhat spontaneous than if you're just sort of reading something. I think that that comes across. But one of the downsides of that is sometimes you forget to say everything you want to say. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I, I had meant to mention that, but I didn't. But I, I think that even more than just sort of the distinction between those two Greek words, I do think that there is some sort of fuzziness in the boundary between worship and veneration, too. And I think, I do think that this distinction still holds, but there is. I don't. There's just something about human psychology that mixes hierarchy and divinity in some sort of way together. Yeah, and that that's and like I remember a funny example of this. I don't know why this stuck in my mind, but there was a really good documentary about Michael Jordan on um, on Netflix. What it was, The Last Dance or something like that. And as a Chicago kid who grew up in the '90s. I remember the hyper veneration, we'll just say that Michael Jordan used to get um, back at the height of his career. And there was this story where Dennis Rodman, who' was another player on the team who's sort of the bad boy, always getting in trouble, he was dating Carmen Electra um, at the time of uh, this and he he like was like skipping practice and like going and hanging out in Vegas. And, like, Carmen Electra was, like, in his, you know, hotel room at this casino in Vegas. And the Bulls sent Michael Jordan to basically, like, go pull Dennis Rodman, like, out of the gutter um, and, like, get him focused back on basketball. And, like, only Michael Jordan was up to this task. And, like, Michael Jordan enters the hotel room and Carmen Electra is in some um, state of semi-clothedness. And in, in like a moment of shame, she's like, oh, my goodness, that's Michael Jordan. And she, like, feels the need to, like, cover herself up. And, you know, a decent chunk of the world could see any part of Carmen Electra that they so wished at this point in time. And so it's like, why would she feel the need to, like, cover herself up? in front of michael jordan and like there was that i remember that story being like because she almost thinks of jordan as semi-divine and like there's something like about jordan's holiness that like brings shame to her even though she's basically shameless and uh and and that michael jordan could like go down into hades and pull dennis Rodman out of las vegas and bring him back to chicago to start practicing again um you know, so I, I, the whole point of that story is there is something about hierarchy and greatness and just a human proclivity to think of it as divine in some kind of weird sense um, that even Carmen Electra feels. And mm-hmm. that, like, there, I, I don't quite know the point that I'm making, but um, I, you know, I, I, I don't, part of me was like trying to, I, I don't know if how, how clear my distinction between worship and veneration in Jesus will really hold. And that when I'm making a presentation like this, I'm sort of trying out an idea and seeing if I can get it to cohere, even if I'm like not 100% convinced of it myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I don't know. There, I mean, because, I mean, there are a lot of proskuneos to Jesus. And it's like, okay, so if proskuneo can sometimes mean capital W, worship, then how do I exclude that these uses of proskeneo towards Jesus are capital W worship? And I, I like I can do the context thing. I'm like, there's no sacrifice offered to Jesus. That's sort of one of my unique arguments that my paper can make. But it's it's kind of hard. And at the end of the day, like when all the apostles like see him and they bow down and proskeneo him, or all of the beings in heaven proskeneo him in Revelation, it's sort of that thing of like the kingly top of the hierarchy divinity commanding something in the people beholding it that is, you know, getting pretty darn close to worship if it isn't. worship.
1: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, the, the, um, I think the distinction and you, you laid this out well in the presentation, the distinction between the two in the old Testament seems pretty darn clear for the most part. Um, now at the same time you get like hints of it. Like there was, is it, was it Psalm 45 was the passage you were quoting from where, um, the, the, the cane has, is, you know, venerated basically. Um, and then the, you know, and then it goes on to say your throne, Oh God, whatever. So these categories between like human cane and veneration and, you know, eternal God, um, you know capital w worship are starting to get muddled even then and i think once you get to jesus like what you're talking about those you know the the categories seem to break down quite a bit it is interesting that you know at the same time you still have uh you know uh, you know a predominant distribution of these two greek words to one way or the other that seems clear enough um but at the same time it's kept muddled enough that it's you know it's it's not like like especially you know the the reason I really stuck on the John four passage is because Jesus there I think that is the that might be the single clearest um, uh, exposition of what New Covenant worship looks like except maybe out of accepting Hebrews maybe I don't know that well at least that Jesus himself ever gives. You know, mm-hmm. and so I was like, man, if this and this is what worship and it's this, this and in that that central passage, he's muddling these 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 categories on the on the level of of, you know, syntax word. And I think, you know, the point being, you know, and I think we both, you know, we have both discussed this before. The syntactical word based arguments can only go so far. Right. Because inevitably, yeah. yeah. You know, a word will, you know, the usage of a word or several usages that will seem to break the pattern. And then we're just like, well,
0: you know, yeah, um, like you can imagine a Bulls fan saying, oh, man, I just worship Michael Jordan. And they're yeah. like using it in some sort of hyperbolic, you know, kind of like figure of speech. But there's still a hint of truth to it kind of way, you know, exactly. and so, like almost all words have exceptions or borderline cases where their meaning is a little bit fuzzy. And so that's why I don't think you can make purely lexicographical, I think that's the right word, arguments. Because all all language, human language is just not as precise as that sometimes. And that's why I think that I, part of, that that's another reason why my argument around sacrifice was um, helpful, I think, because it, it's helping to give Sort of an embodied, well, what's that? An embodied action definition to worship that can help distinguish it from veneration that's beyond just pure semantics and syntax. Although, one thing I will mention about um, John 4 is I'm pretty sure every time that Jesus mentions the word worship, he connects it with the Father, right? When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father hours coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him, seemingly still referring to the Father must worship him in spirit and truth. So that's actually I could have I could have dwelt on that aspect of that passage a little bit more, but it's interesting to me that Jesus, when he's do, and he is using the word proscaneo, that is proscaneo or a conjugation of it, but he still connects it with the Father. And to me, that sort of helps that it's that passage I probably should have emphasized this more in my chart where I emphasize that the recipient of worship doesn't change. I feel like that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. There's going to be a change in the form of worship. But currently Jews worship the Jerusalem but the time is coming and now is when we won't worship the father in this mountain or in any mountain, but we'll worship the father in spirit and in truth. It's so a change of worship, but because he connects the father both to the old form of worship and the new form of worship, I think that's one of those verses where I get that sort of continuity of recipient from.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I could see where you're coming from. I think even then it's, To me, the the passage is maybe still muddles things a little bit because, you know, it says, you know, we'll worship the father in spirit and in truth. And one point I made in the video, which was, you know, it's not a hard point. It's maybe a bit, you know, it's it's a bit exegetically loose. But to say, oh, spirit and truth, there's there's a bit of you can hear the Trinitarian echo in there if you, you know, if you Mm -hmm. put your ear up to it. Right. So there's there's something in that. But I think the. The more interesting point of it is he said is then he goes on to say God is spirit. Right. And yeah. and that like like af- after the stuff that he's talking about, worshiping the father, now he's saying God is spirit, which you could say is a at, you know, at, at the risk of, of, of committing modalism here is maybe a different role that God you know could play it's like well we've been talking about the father we worship the father obviously he's god because we're but then but then he's like god is spirit there is a there's a there's a change there and that the force of that statement is just that you know god is spirit right it's like it's a very direct statement and then so like i don't know necessarily where i'm going for that but um you know, one one other reason you might posit is, is um, Jesus doesn't really seem to um, tell people explicitly, you know, worship me, whether it's Proskeneo or Latreo or whatever. Um, he sort of, you know, sometimes... Accepts it.
0: There's a couple times where he accepts it without objection.
1: Right. Like, right. that's just...
0: Yeah, whether that's just the bowing kind or whether it's, you know, meant to be understood as something more than bowing is unclear. But I, Jesus accepts it, <laughs> although right. he never commands it. Yeah. 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 And, I you know, it's
1: it's which is it's an interesting thing. I mean, you could you could make sense of that by saying, well, you know, if Jesus just, you know, commands people to, you know, bow down to me, let trail me. Um, you, you could, you could think of that. Well, that's not really in fitting with the canonic ethic that, you know, Paul lays out about what Christ was doing, right. He emptied himself and, you know, became the most humble, became the most meek and that direct call would not have been fitting. Um, you know, in, in, in that way. I mean, maybe once you get to like revelation, then it becomes maybe more explicit. Although
0: in, in the canonic passage in Philippians two, it ends with every knee will bow and every tongue confess Christ Jesus as Lord. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like a, a, a revelation that the earliest Christians seem to naturally come to, right. It's, it's not like Jesus explicitly told them this is how it is. He it's There's a sense in which he let them figure it out or that, his example was was the proof and that uh, you know the Holy Spirit worked in them in such a way that they were like oh this this is the real deal you know so I don't know I mean you know I, I don't even necessarily like like the the, the 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 idea that Jesus is is talking about worshiping the Father does does absolutely you know Sort of dovetail with his role as being the the human mediator and how he is he's leading humanity into this this new form of worship, which I agree with. You know, I just would you know add on the additional divinity part of that thing. And the 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 thing I would um, maybe propose to you is like, do you see any any con- like an inherent contradiction between the idea that we can have all these very human man sounding roles for Jesus. And, but at the same time, um, you know, if we, if we read, um, you know, especially, you know, the, the gospel of John in a certain way, we could also get to this, this really astounding claim about Jesus and, you know, Jesus, you know, I am the father and one, you know, all that stuff that we've talked about before. Right. I mean, does, does that make sense to you? Like, like, I wonder, you yeah. know, Because the whole time I I was watching your presentation, I was like, you know, I I get what he I get what you're saying, but I don't even, you know, I'm not sure I see the contradiction between the idea that God could that Jesus would have a fully capital divine nature and at the same time, if he's also fully human, well, of course he's going to be doing all this human stuff, right? Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I think one the one contradiction, or at least a A central contradiction that I would see would be Jesus being a worshiper, too. And that, to me, seems like too big of a contradiction for me to make sense of. That if Jesus is fully capital D divine and a full member of the Godhead, even in his humanity, he's still supposed to be fully united with his divinity. They're not to be too separable, at least in my understanding of Orthodox theology, so the, even the answer, well, he's worshiping God in his humanity, well, it's like no, you, your humanity doesn't worship something. Your person, you worship something with your person. So it would have to be the case that the second person was worshiping, you know, someone else. And to me, that that seems a little bit too. Um, He can't be God himself or have a fully capital D divine nature if he is participating in worship. And, you know, I pointed out a couple places where Jesus worships God. But I mean, I think just mentioning that he's a high priest does that trick because that's the job description of a high priest is to be a worship leader. Um, So that to me seems like a contradiction that I don't quite know how to swallow is how can Jesus himself be a worshiper if he as a fully capital D divine nature.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, if, and, and I, I, see your point in the sense that there's not really like a, a precedent between for, for some union between worshiper and worshipped, right. These have always been separate things. So the, you know, I think, I think Jesus certainly models these categories, right. I think the, uh you know yeah i don't know i i you know part of it again it gets into like you know christological trinitarian minutiae over like well what 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 do we mean when we say that jesus is fully divine and he also worships the father how do we tease that out with the nature you know you could have the monarchical trinity model which um uh it, so anyways you know stuff like that so like i'm not even I work on a, you know, I I've been thinking about this on a more intuitive level than like a, like um, you know some of the some of the the much smarter folks you've had on who's who who've really spent their lives studying this thing, right? Um, but you know, it's it's like I, I to respond, I would say something like, well, Jesus as 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 the the uh, the quintessential. Human, the pinnacle of what humanity was supposed to be, is fulfilling this role of leading all of us into worship, of you know, right worship of God. Um, now, of course, there's you know, maybe there's a weird part in that where you know he's simultaneously worshipped and yet you know worshiping. I you know, I don't know. I mean, the 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 nature of worship seems ambiguous enough. That I, I'm not too concerned about it. Like, if that makes sense. Like, what we've been talking about—the ambiguity between Proskyneo and Latreo and stuff. Um, the the yeah, I I don't know. I I I I don't know. I just don't have many reservations about it in the sense that, like, like you know, worshiped and worship her are because because Jesus overturns so many. Paradigms, you know, there's a complete paradigm shifts in all these other domains that Jesus accomplishes with what he does. So for me, I don't, I, you know, it doesn't seem like much of a leap to say, well, there's a sense in which he can both lead in worship and also be the one to which worship is is given or goes through via monarchical, trinitarian, whatever. I'm not
0: decided, on that. so I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll also say my my presentation mostly was actually a defensive argument. I got a little offensive at the end, but re, if you remember, the main purpose of my presentation is defending against an offensive argument that the worship of Jesus makes him capital D divine. Hmm. Right. And yeah. that that most of the time I was just trying to defend against that argument. And then at the end, I kind of twisted around and stick the knife in a little bit with an offensive argument. But the main purpose was still mostly defensive. Yeah. Um, I have to get going in a little bit. Do you want to um, – any, any last things that you want to say before we close it out?
1: Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought you're – presentation was 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 great and very interesting i mean i learned some things and i think you know it's but the the most again the most interesting thing that i hope people take away was like you know how you brought in this traditional high church idea of the eucharist and sort of put you know made this interesting synthesis that i would not have expected so that i appreciated and you know i obviously still have my objections but i you know i think it was good and um like the the what's been enlightening about it to me is is you're sort of like the the because you're so close to the 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 full-on evangelical we affirm all these things you're sort of like in the you know you know you know those diagrams of the uncanny valley right you're sort of right at the bottom right and so like you know we you know the the, the JWs and the Mormons, well, they're off a ways, you know, we know how to deal with them, but Oh, what, what, what is this, 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 you know, local minima here. And Sam's right at the bottom. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that trying to tease that out with you with, you know, 99% of the assumptions that we already agree on. And it's this one, you know, very significant thing. So um, I think that's, that's like the reason I've been so interested in it. It's sort of like a puzzle, like, mm-hmm. Like, you know, how do we tease this out? So anyways.
0: no. Well, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate your comments. And it's like, I should also say, not all the biblical Unitarians agreed with my argument, obviously. I had like some people come up to me afterwards and be like, yes. But uh, I also had people like you, know, like Dale Tuggy, uh, who is sort of the lead biblical Unitarian philosopher and is one of the organizers of the conference. Uh, like I was out for drinks afterwards with him and he was raking me over the coals <laughs> 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 over a, a friendly in a friendly manner with a, with a Biden hand. But uh, so I should say it's not like everyone agreed with me either. Um, but yeah, I, 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 appreciate your engagement, John. Uh, I'm excited to see some of the stuff that comes out on your YouTube channel. And, uh, so, and thanks for your time this evening.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Sam. It was great. Yeah. I love talking about it. So. All right. Talk to you later.